And so as things unravel, of course, the pressure, the combination of declining confidence and peak debt is a very bad one. My question really is, does it take the Fed or would it find the weak spot anyway, sooner or later? Welcome to the Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Trey Lockerbie. And as I said at the top, I'm here with Jeremy Grantham. Jeremy, we're so excited to have you back on the show. Thank you so much for coming back on. It's a pleasure. Good to be here. Well, I was really excited to talk to you because this bubble that we've been talking about and you've been really opining on since, I oh gosh, maybe two years ago when we first started talking and all your predictions have just been coming true to this unbelievable degree. And I wanted to kind of gauge where you think we are now, because at the same time as we're seeing big things happening in banking and a lot of other areas, the market is only down 16, 17%. So there's a lot to kind of gauge as to how far along into this thing we are. So I also have noticed that a lot of market participants are really haunted by 2008 and the GFC, and they're often quick to point out events that resemble that collapse, especially over the last few years. And since we just had the second largest bank failure in U.S. history, it's feeling eerily similar to 2008, almost in a new way. What are your general views about the recent banking crisis and what can history tell us of the events unfolding in the banking system and I guess the overall markets today? I was um, reminded of the old uh, aphorism that the um, Fed keeps on tightening and until something breaks and uh, in a situation like this. And it reminded me of, of a conclusion that I had come to on the study of the great bubbles, the, the handful, the, the five or six, including Japan in the last uh, 100 years, because it seems to be the same. When you come down from a high, the ultimate sugar high of a super bubble, almost infinite optimism, a belief that good things will go on forever, that record profit margins, etc., etc. And it's always... The bubbles always form at the end of a long, heroic economy and everything in the garden is perfect. And it always has taken cooperation on the part of the Fed and the administration. So everything is perfect. And then when something pricks that confidence and it begins to, to leak out, there is a long way down to go from the peak of optimism to at least mild panic, if not severe panic. It's a long drop. And at the top, people have always in their confidence, have always expanded their their debt levels. So they're always at or near the all-time peak in 1929 or 2000, the housing bubble and so on, and in Japan in 89. And as they were this time, this time you had record levels of debt to GDP all, all over the world, but certainly including the US. And so as things unravel, of course, the pressure, the combination of declining confidence and peak debt is a very bad one. My question really is, does it take the Fed or would it find the weak spot anyway, sooner or later? And maybe the Fed raising rates accelerates the breaking point. And I think of it as like water behind a dam. You, you're never going to be able to predict which brick goes first. In fact, you should expect the unexpected. By its very nature, it's a complicated financial system, a complicated economic system, and you build up the pressure and you build up the pressure as your confidence comes down and the debt begins to hurt, and particularly if the Fed is raising rates, and then something blows. And each time, it seemed to be unexpected. Who imagined Bear Stearns would go, hey, 
the bear, as we used to call them, they were the guys that always inflicted the, the nasty paper on other people. And when the music stopped, they always had a, they always had one of the jets. So when Bear Stearns went in 07, it was a, a major surprise. And Silicon Valley, until you think about it and look at the balance sheet, it, it did appear to strike the world as a complete surprise. And maybe that is my point from 60,000 feet is that is the nature of the beast. You should expect that the first thing that goes will, generally speaking, be a surprise. And then how it cascades is virtually unknowable. But let it be said, after the handful of the great bubbles, there has always been a recession. If people behave well, the uh, the leaders are sensible. It's a mild recession. 2000 was about as mild as it comes. If they behave very badly and get unlucky, like 1929, you get a depression. If they behave badly and refuse to regulate subprime instruments in the housing bubble, where Larry Summons and the boys lent on Brooksley Bourne, who had the legal right to control subprime, regulate it on the ground. You didn't need to regulate banks. They were, by their nature, capable of self-regulation. This was um, the Federal Reserve levied at the SEC and Larry Summers arm wrestling to make sure that they were not regulated. I love to bring that up because I call those guys the Teflon men, and it doesn't seem to stick with them. They brought the system to its knees on the mistaken belief that capitalism could self-regulate. And what a horror show it was. And anyway, here we are back again, and we're going to find out how good the regulations have been since the housing bust, how effective the weaseling of the corporations was to push it back. We all know now how Silicon Valley CEO personally lobbied, joined the lobby really to roll back the regulation so that they could be unregulated. On the supposition, once again, somehow that capitalism is responsible enough to regulate itself. Well, it just ain't so. And capitalism needs a policeman at the corner of Broad and Wall, as FDR said. And uh, in recent times, some of the policemen have been taking time off or being regulated off their beat. I just pulled up a chart here, and for those who are only listening to this, what it's showing is called past bubbles suggest this should take a while or it could take a while. And what it says is basically the percentage from peak to trough and the trading days. So if we count sort of January 1st of 22 as the pop of this bubble, because that's where the market's really started to turn, that would suggest that we're at about roughly 300 trading days or so. If you count holidays in there, it's probably give or take around 300 days since the pop. And this is showing that the only other times something's taken over 300 days would be 2007, 1968, 1973, and 2000. So for those who are listening, 2007 took 350 days, peak to trough, 68, a little bit more, 1973, about 450, and 2000 was the longest. It took about a little over 650. Does this mean anything, right? Because with the idea that history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme, would this be any indicator in your mind that we are, say, somewhat towards the end or, or more like halfway? People make a big mistake to average bull markets and bear markets. But this is not about that. This is about something quite singular and different that happens on rare occasions in the great bubbles. The two and a half sigma ultimate euphoria episodes. There's like a phase change. People go from fairly sensible behavior in an ordinary bull market to absolutely crazy as could be in these great bubbles. And throw the rest of the data away and look at the bubbles and the data is clear. First of all, they're always easy to spot and it is always claimed that they are not, but they stand out 
in terms of the data on the market, like a Himalayan peak out of the plain. Two and a half standard deviation events of the kind that occur every 50 to 100 years, these are not hard to spot. 1929, you had to try to miss it. 2000, Lord knows you had to try. It went to 35 times earnings, beating everyone on the head with a hammer. The housing bubble was even bigger than that. The U.S. housing bubble in 06, that was a three sigma. That was literally over a 100-year event. It had never happened before. Most unlikely, it took the undivided attention of Greenspan and Bernanke pushing and pushing interest rates down to finally get the entire U.S. housing market uh, to go into warp drive simultaneously. Famously, it had been diversified before that. It would bubble in Florida, crash in Chicago, and so on. So it never happened until it got their undivided attention. And um, so just concentrate on these few. They always have a recession, and when they want to take their time, they really take their time. Most of the decline in these great bear markets only happens after the first interest rate cut. So you tell me when the first interest rate cut is, and I will tell you when the second half of the pain is going to start. And it it would be unlikely from a historical point of view that this would not run, this financial and stock market event would not run deep into next year. And that's what it, that's what it looks like. It's not hurrying. But let me bring up another point on your chart. We have forgotten to inflation adjust because we haven't had inflation for 20 years. In the old days, all data like this, everything you read in The Economist, etc., was always inflation adjusted. We have had, for example, over 10% inflation. The market isn't down 15%. The market is down 25 In the housing bubble, there was no inflation. In 2000, there was no inflation. You can't compare this one with 10% inflation with that one that had a couple. And 25% is a pretty decent down payment on this bear market, I would say. The passage of time against a market that has a trend line and in an economy that has inflation, the passage of time is pretty painful. If you even stay flat, you are losing money at a decent speed. And people have forgotten that. One question that comes to my mind when you mentioned the longevity that we might be looking at here is just the actions of of the last week or so, because what I see happening is the banking sector almost tightening for the Fed to some degree. You, you had Powell this week actually just come out and say they don't really expect to keep hiking rates because, you know, they're seeing obviously some instability. But what's also interesting is that banks are choosing to use the Fed's discount window to a degree that's even more than 2008. So they're at, just recently have gone to the Fed for about 150 billion compared to, uh, only 12 billion for this new BTFP otherwise known as bank term funding program that was just introduced. And the reason I guess that's interesting to me is because the BTFP is a better deal for banks. It takes a certain kind of collateral, but they're getting more money for that collateral, whereas they're going to the discount window and selling a bunch of assets they have at a discount. And I guess what that tells me is that the banks are needing that cash and are willing to take a haircut because they're in a more desperate place than we thought. And that just leads me to believe that tightening is going to continue on the lending terms, which might exacerbate a recession a little bit quicker. Is there anything to that, in your opinion, as far as outside elements that might progress this thing forward in a, in a more aggressive fashion? The blunt truth here is I don't really care. I try and concentrate on what I consider the realities, which are profits and growth. And I assume that if you're patient, that the paper side of it will wash through the system. And we had a very obvious first phase of the bubble. We pricked the confidence. It's easy. All you have to do is shake that complete and absolute 
euphoria. We did that. It popped nicely. Then you have a, a classic bear market rally. And we, we knew from the beginning, didn't we, that we would have more buy the dip this time than almost ever before because of the trillion dollars plus lurking around in, in the piggy bank from uh, COVID stimulus. And from the behavior of the meme stocks, we knew this was not going to melt away too quickly. And so we had the spectacular rally and we may very well have more. And then you get into the third phase and that is the fundamentals. And that's the difficult one. How long and how painful will the actual reality, the adjustment phase be? How badly will the economy slow down? How badly will profit margins shrink? Let me point out the most genteel one was 2000. We had a very mild recession. We've never had anything like a soft landing, but that was the closest. That was the least hard landing. And what happened? Uh, NASDAQ went down 82%. S&P went down 50%. Real estate was cheap. It was not involved. The bond market was cheap. It was not involved. Everything that was favorable could be favorable. And still it droned on for three years and the NASDAQ went down 82%. That is what I'm interested in. Profit margins got hammered and the growth rate slowed down moderately. In the housing bubble, the GDP slowed down even more. Profits basically disappeared completely. 1929, of course, was even worse. So we're going to have an unknowable bad time. It will depend on how effective the administration is and so on. But the truth is, we come into this with very high profit margins. We come into it with a form of capitalism that was raising prices for the first time ahead of the workers, so that in unexpected inflation, very quickly profit margins went up and real wages went down. This is not what happened in the 70s, I can assure you. Profit margins went down and real wages went up. But this is a corporate system that we could talk about, which is really quite interesting. The American corporate system has developed a style that uh, makes it almost uh, possible to uh, break the law legally. The way to make a lot of money is to get on the telephone call up your competitors and withhold production. The bad news is if they catch you, you go to jail. And what we have today, increasingly now for 20 years, is a style of capitalism where the stockholders are leaning on the corporations to take it easy on CapEx. Why? I mean, basically, it generates an economy of mild shortage all the time. You want to make money, that is the world to live in. So mild shortage all the time, pressure on the workers, in the good old days, they always built an extra plant. It was the bane of, of stock analysts like me in the 60s and 70s. Whenever things started to improve, eight paper companies would all start to build a giant plant at the same time, and they would crash the prices. It was great for jobs, great for GDP growth, pretty good for productivity, terrible for stockholders. And now we don't. The CapEx has dropped as a fraction of the total pretty steadily for 20 years. The degree of concentration or monopoly, if you prefer, has risen pretty steadily for 20 years. And it's all legal because it's the stockholders breathing down your neck saying, dudes, buy your stock back. Don't build a risky new plant. It might work well. It might be mistimed. In any case, it's risky. Better to wait and see which of the hundreds of VC firms work out well and then grab one or two of the best ones. It's a capital transaction, doesn't go into the income statement, all that dangerous volatility that you used to have associated with your own endeavors, you can now smooth out and wait uh, to see who wins. In any case, so the profit margins have risen steadily. And even in adversity, they are good. Even in COVID, they're good. Even as the economy slows down, even as inflation unexpectedly bursts on the scene, 
you suddenly find yourself, oh, what a surprise in a world of mile shortage. Any surprise and we are short capacity. And this is wonderful for profits, terrible for the economy, terrible for equality and the wage rates of the workers who basically are still stuck back in, in the level of hourly rate adjusted for in- inflation of 1975 to 1980. That is not an exaggeration. Check it out. And yet we have grown as fast as other countries about, say, France. I like to say whose bottoms we have been apparently kicking for the last 40 years, if you read Business Week, because of eurosclerosis, because of too much government control. Their average hourly hour worked has increased its remuneration by 160%. Japan by just shy of 100 the dopey Brits by 60 or 70%, and the hard-driving capitalists in the U.S. less than 10. I mean, basically, our workers have been royally screwed, have not participated in the substantial productivity since the mid-1970s, and the main culprit is now completely legal. (laughs) That is, the stockholders bullying management into doing what management always wants to do anyway, which is uh, live in a world where you control everything, you buy your own stock back. And Warren Buffett has said some very interesting things about stock buybacks recently, like anyone who suggests there's any damage done as a enumerator or a villain. Of course, he did say all buybacks. Anyone who says all buybacks are damaging. Of course, that word all can be used to make, there's always some exception. There's always some part of anything that is useful. But what stock buybacks do is facilitates this world that I'm talking about. You don't want to do any capex. You want to live in a world of shortage. So you just buy your stock back instead of building a new plant. And let me just point one thing out to people who think it's identical to a dividend. When you pay a dividend, you distribute it evenly between your most enthusiastic stockholders and the one who's disgusted with you and is about to sell you on Monday morning. A stock buyback does not do that. The stock buyback says, who is the least enthusiastic about my stock? Here's the pseudo dividend. You hand him cash and you take his eager stock. You are constantly retiring the least enthusiastic shareholders. And if you think that that does not remorselessly push up the price of stocks, you are not exactly innumerate, but unimaginative. Of course it does. Secondly, it was illegal for the first 15 years of my career and forever before that since FDR, because they argued that the insiders in the company knew everything. And going out into the market and buying from the uninformed with stock manipulation. How ridiculous. How ridiculous to think that the corporate insiders know more than you do as an institution buying from the outside. Of course they know more. Of course it is facilitating stock manipulation. And in my opinion, of course it should be illegal. People say, well, it's the same as dividends. Well, in that case, whoopee, pay a dividend and nothing has changed. You pay out a dividend, I'm happy, and apparently you're happy. And Warren will have to pay some taxes. I'm sorry about that. But it uh, is much healthier in the long run for the total economy to have corporations paying simple dividends. And then some of the incentive to buy stock back rather than build a new factory disappears. And there will be a little bit more growth in CapEx, which is really done badly. GDP growth has slowed, you know, in the U.S. for the last 30 years as this new fashion came in. Productivity has irregularly, but but obviously slowed down. The state of U.S. capitalism is not that healthy, with the, I believe, with the exception of, of the VC industry, which is still pretty good. 
What you're talking about, I've seen uh, mostly in things like oil producing companies, and there's definitely a lack of supply there. And so much that we've, I think we've, uh, you know, liquidated probably half or so of our SPR, you know, at this point. So a ridiculous amount. Munger has said uh, spending $1 over intrinsic value on, on a buyback is immoral. And I know that that much at least is true. And I tend to be in the same camp as you. And I've brought this up with uh, multiple people on the show, like Michael Mobison and others. And this is such an interesting debate. I guess my question is, if this economy where we're kind of always uh, living in scarcity to some degree, why would we have not seen inflation sooner than we have now? I came across the expression this morning, greedflation. We've had inflation in profits and not so much in uh, wages. And yet we've managed to create the impression that somehow we should be terrified of wage inflation. And we haven't complained as corporations rose their prices so quickly into all the problems of COVID and the war. I agree that uh, something you said earlier also reminded me of this idea that it's like capitalism on the way up and socialism on the way down. It seems to be this backstop that is just continuously solidifying itself. And I'll tell you what I'm scared about. Janet Yellen was giving a testimony to Congress, and there was this really interesting exchange between her and Senator Lankford of Oklahoma. And he pressed her on this idea that if the regional banks aren't fully insured, that would incentivize this migration to all the larger banks that aren't insured because they're too big to fail. And that that would essentially create, you know, four too big to fail banks and make them even larger than they are today. And my fear is that that kind of gets us on this path of nationalizing banking if I'm going to the extreme. But at the same time, you're seeing new papers coming out about the government's central bank digital currency and all these things that would kind of align with this motive of nationalizing that banking system. So it's starting to feel like a runaway train to me. Does this give you any concern as far as just the the hegemony of the dollar or just the overall overreach of the government when it's entering into capitalism more and more? Most of that is over my pay grade. That's easy. My attitude really is leave as much as you can to capitalism. It does, it does a million things really very well, balancing supply demand better than maybe, interestingly, artificial intelligence in 10 years will be so clever that it will enable a state controlled authority to balance supply and demand. But at least in the past, it was hopelessly inadequate and, and capitalism was was much better. The trouble with capitalism is it's, it can't spell the word altruism. It's really not part of its language. It's not designed to do that. It's not designed to look out for the long-term well-being of uh, society, of humans. So toxic waste, get away with what you can, climate change, obfuscate, as the oil companies provably did, try and confuse people so that you can pump out more CO2, more fossil fuels uh, for longer. The oil companies probably cost us 10 or 15 years that we may or may not be able to afford. It's going to be a very closely run race. And uh, they may have cost us, a, in the long run, a stable society. It will be revealed to my children and grandchildren, but it won't be that long in the future. So you've got this efficient profit-maximizing machine capitalist. And uh, Schumpeter used to worry back in the 40s and 50s that the trouble with capitalism was it was too damn successful, that it would become more powerful. It would become political. It would be able to influence the economy to change in a way that was beneficial for itself. And so there I was looking around in the last week and I came across I came across a study of small versus large companies in the US. And in 1990, the companies under 1 billion made 8% return on sales and the ones over 10 billion, the big companies made uh, 12, 8 to 12. That's exactly what I would expect. 
They make 50% more than the little guys. And 2021, the guys who used to make eight now make four, and the guys who used to make 12 now make 18. This was in The Economist. They usually get it right. I hope they adjusted for inflation. Not entirely certain. But in any case, there's plenty of room in that data. An 8 to 12 relationship is more or less how you expect the benefit of large scale. 4 to 18 is what you expect to see when the system is being run for the benefit of large corporations. And I believe American capitalism is just that. It's run the benefit of large corporations. And Citizens United has a lot to answer for. The idea that somehow spending the stockholders' money to influence Politics is a measure of free speech. It is up there with the several other rather loony conclusions that the Supreme Court has, has come to uh, in recent years. And uh, it makes me uh, rather sad for the well-being of small companies. And do you know that today we have half the number of people in companies one or two years old that we had in the 70s? So we are not, broadly speaking, as uh, ambitious and enterprising as we used to be. Because the big companies basically have so much power uh, that they create an unlevel playing field. This is what we have to worry about. Of course, it's, it's been wonderful for, for profits in the recent years. And there's no question that the, the fangs have gone out there and, and created great companies, some of the greatest new quick companies in the history of capitalism. Monopolies or near monopolies, all of them and, and hugely profitable and by and large brilliant. And that accounts for 80, 90% of all of the superiority between the U.S. system in the last 20 years and the rest of the developed world. So, yes, the balance has done okay. And the balance is also more monopolistic than it used to be in a higher concentration in almost every industry. But um, the fangs have been superstars. Let me just add that every one of them came out of the VC industry. The VC industry is dismissed sometimes as being small. Well, it's small in one sense. In another sense, it created the fangs, which are the great monsters of the Western world. And it did so pretty recently. Only two of them were around when we started Afra. Uh, all the rest are newbies. And even the two that were around, Apple and Microsoft, were barely around. We hired away what would have been employee 26 at Microsoft, poor man. Well, speaking of Apple and Microsoft and them growing to be the size they are, they now account for over 13% of the S&P 500 and making up roughly 15 to 25% respectively. We haven't seen two stocks make up that level since IBM and AT&T in 1978. So what is the sudden appeal of these two? You've mentioned the fangs, but a lot of those, some of these letters are falling away, just becoming MA at this point. Why are people flocking to these stocks in particular, would you say, and, and especially in this new high interest rate environment that we're currently in? I think it's just the... Um epitome of what I've been almost ranting about. They are virtual monopolies, each of them. And I speak while I look at my giant iPad, and actually I can see my medium-sized iPad and, and my iPhone. It's all here within touching distance. I mean, uh, amazing implements, and they got there with the best capabilities and the best styling. They got there with the most and the first, and they. Uh, they make a lot of money and they own that market just as Microsoft rode its really its, its one initially one program to glory. And um, Apple is, is in its way even more amazing because in the end, it's a, a producer of goods, even though it's sensibly enough subcontract out there to the cheapest cost effective labor in the world that it can find. 
I don't criticize it for doing that. It's legal and uh, it's what a sensible capitalist would do. But they are kind of living proof of what a really effective monopoly can do for you. And good luck to them in a sense. But uh, at some level, a sensible society develops a rules and regulations for how big is too big and what to do about it. That was pretty tough back in the day when they decided, Teddy Roosevelt, I guess, that uh, Standard Oil owned the world. And um, so divided it into half a dozen pieces, which then could amuse themselves for the following 80 years, putting themselves back together. Basically, what ExxonMobil and so on did, they undid Teddy Roosevelt's, you have to say, brilliant work, because it was much healthier to have, for a while, eight powerful oil companies rather than one or two. What's kind of interesting is that AT&T and IBM have gone on to do quite well even since the late 1970s when they were making up such a, a large decree. So it kind of makes you wonder where we'll be with Apple and Microsoft even 30, 40 years from now. I pulled up this report mainly for you because I know you're such a student of history and you, you alluded to this earlier, but I went back and, and I saw these headlines from different papers in this report and in 1973, there was one that said, economists see a soft landing when boom ends. 1978, soft landing, economy seen. 1989, U.S. economy seems to be heading for a soft landing. <laughs> 2000, soft landing in sight for economy, rate cut next. 2007, Fed chairman projects soft landing for U.S. economy. So we all know how those worked out. And you, you said earlier that there has been no soft landing. Why do you think this keeps happening, this narrative, right? I mean, I understand they're trying to instill confidence to some degree, but with this kind of track record. It's long been a part of my stump speech, almost as long as I can remember, the commercial imperative to be bullish. Uh, just try and work out an alternative. You'll never make as much money at being bearish if you're one of the, the great investment banks or commercial banks. You're selling, or, or investment companies, you're, you're selling stocks to the world or stock advice to the world. The optimal flight path to long-term profit is to be resolutely bullish and pump out as many new instruments and as many new funds and products as you can on the way up, and then be a little quicker and slicker on the way down, uh, regroup as quickly as you can, try and make a bit of money on the downside if you're smart enough, and then make a long, drawn-out fortune being bullish again. There's no edge in being bearish for them. And so they never are. You tell me why the Morgan Stanley guy today is so bearish. I don't know. He hasn't read the, the secret little book of advice that comes with those jobs, which says never be bearish. This is about as bearish as any guy in a firm like that has ever been in my career. Uh, the only other example was was uh, UBS Brinson after they'd done a deal with Gary Brinson, who was a suitable value-oriented investor going into the 2000 event. And uh, they pumped out rather cautious advice like we did at the time, but they were the 8,000-pound gorilla. And uh, fortunately, they changed their battle plan uh, to um, get religion and go into the growth stocks just before the end, somewhat leaving the field to us. They, it wasn't that there weren't a lot of other value managers around. They just weren't uh, standing on the table shouting like we were. And in a sense, uh, Gary Brinson was for a while. So with that one exception, there are almost no bears in the established industry. Permanent bullishness. And one of the things that really irritates them, consequently, is when any of us are bearish. And they immediately say, oh, perma-bear, perma-bear, perma-bear. If you look at their records, there's a lot of perma here, but it's perma-bulls. The entire industry is a perma-bull. And any good propagandist going back to the Nazis knows 
what you do is you accuse the enemy of what you're doing. So permabare is a good way of dismissing people who are trying to irritate you by making some of your clients nervous on the way up. And uh, But they make tons of money. It makes absolute sense. I even sympathize with them. Uh, the commercial interest is clear. Uh, but do not expect any clear-cut bearishness from the institutional world, from the financial world in general. It just never happens, never will happen. I have a couple of questions around VC since you uh, you mentioned it. A lot of uh, people are waking up to the idea of fractional reserve banking with this whole bank crisis. And you, there is a lot of VCs in the news, right, surrounding Silicon Valley Bank and almost being uh, you know blamed for the bank run. Then there was blame thrown at depositors for not knowing that they were at risk. What was kind of your take knowing that Silicon Valley Bank was such a staple, a 16th largest bank, you know, helping all these burgeoning companies that you yourself are are looking into to some degree to, you know, to fight climate change or what have you. What could have been changed there in your opinion? Was there anything to the argument around VCs sparking this out of fear? Just your general take would be interesting. If you enjoy this podcast, you are going to love our free investing newsletter called We Study Markets. We realize that not everyone has time to listen to a podcast every day or even every week. So we took this same type of content and put it into an easy-to-read newsletter. In just five minutes a day, you can stay up-to-date with what's going on in the financial world and what's happening with your money. And it's completely free. Join over 30,000 other readers now by simply clicking the link here on the pop-up on your screen and then entering your email. It's that simple. Just click the link here in the pop-up on your screen, enter your email, and start knowing what's happening with your money. Yeah, I, I just see what you see. And it did look like the uh, the big end of the VC market. The VC operators uh, did um, absolutely nothing to help, but uh, accelerated the, the damage. And maybe if you knew it better than I do, you would conclude that it was inevitable that they would have failed. And I can't conclude that. I just don't know. And the top end of the big VC firms have got a great record and they've done a really good job over over decades. My real admi- admiration, though, is, is for the startups themselves. These really are some of the, the best people around. And in the green VC world, which we specialize in, we have our own team and we've done 65 deals, 70 deals. And we have a half hour foundation in early stage green VC, which is quite a lot. My admiration is for the guys. I mean, these are, I talk about capitalism can't spell altruism. These guys actually can spell altruism. They're either Oscar winning performers or they actually care. Amazing, isn't it? They actually care about being useful and helping a planet in distress. You know, they think it's worthwhile what they're doing in the green world of technology. And if we get through this unpleasantness, and I'm far from sure that we will, but if we do, it will be because we're a very inventive species. And in America in particular, we take risk pretty quickly and easily, and we support risk takers and the combination. And with the great research universities, which is so important to the equation, uh, we have a really impressive rate of invention, engineering, cost reduction, and it may get us through this, not because we're going to do what is right, because it's what is right, to hell with that. It's because they will make it cheaper to do what we have to do. And eventually it will be cheaper to have an electric car than a regular car if it is not already. It will be cheaper by far to run it and have cheap green electricity and cheap green power, which we will have. Uh, We will have plenty of cheap green power 
into the indefinite future. It does remind me of a topic that we have not talked about. That is, we're writing a paper, my colleague and I, and it's, I think it's going to be called The Long Term is Now. Because the issues that I worry about, which is under-recognized long-term problems, is my job description. And that's climate change, running out of resources, running out of people and toxicity. And, you know, for 15 years, the potential clients have been rolling their eyes at me because these are boring topics. And then suddenly, in the last two years, everything is climate. And in the last year, you can pick up the Atlantic or Business Week and, and you can read about term resource shortage and you can read about people shortage. No one breathed a word about people shortage. This is the most dramatic collapse. We have been growing pretty much the population of the world for hundreds of thousands of years ever since Homo sapiens was Homo sapiens. And very, very slowly at first and then accelerating to warp speed with the Industrial Revolution. And in my life in particular, we tripled the global population. But um, this year, global babies will be the same as 2000. For the first time in human history, we will have peaked out a few years ago in terms of the babies born. And the population grows because people live longer and you have more old fogies. But in the end, everything depends on the babies born. The fertility rate replacement is 2.1. And you're talking about in China, 1.3. In Korea, 0.8. In Japan, 1.3 or 4. In Italy, 1.2 or 3. Hungary, and so on. And in the US, 1.7. In the UK, 1.65. I mean, these are incredible numbers. You know, the, the cohort of young men presenting themselves for military in Japan are down by 30%. In 20 years, it will be down by almost 50%. And, you know, this has powerful implications that the economic world is pretty uncertain. But one of the few certainties is that for the next 20 years, we'll have fewer workers presenting themselves for inspection as potential workers. And we know that for absolute certainty because they're born. And um, my guess is that the baby cohort will continue to shrink. And that uh, China, for example, which is really the pointy edge of this problem, because it's not only that they had 1.3 or 4 last year in fertility, it's that they have very few fertile women as a percentage of the total. The one-child policy bears particularly on the 20 to 40-year-old category, which are the people who have babies. And it tilted 15% to men, which doesn't help your number of fertile women. So they are desperately short of fertile women times those that they have times 1.3 or a, a miserable fertility rate. This is a kind of double jeopardy. It means that within 20 years, they will have to deal with the kind of pressures of retirement, looking after old bogies, lack of workers at such a scale that they will have uh, really serious problems and they will need to use their considerable brains to start working on this now in order to head off a destabilized society. And an echo of that is going to be in South Korea, Japan, and so on, and rapidly spreading around the developed world. There is a growing concern, but it's tiny compared to what you might have. Anyway, these are all bearing down on us now. So we have a long-winded recessionary period coming any minute. And into that period, we have much accelerated climate damage, probably knocked off half a percent of global GDP, probably for the first year, a measurably large amount. Floods, fires, interrupting agriculture, flooding when you're meant to be planting and when you're reaping and so on, too hot for certain crops, chronic droughts hurting other crops, just a drag on growth particularly in the developing world, 
but also a push on prices. It is inflationary. Then we have resource shortages. Part of the problem with no capex for the last 20 years is we don't have wonderful minds itching to come on the market as we had in 2011, 2012, when the last peak occurred. Most of the big miners had their last desperate giant new mines to bring on, which they did all together, like the good old days. And this time, there's no capex. There are no great mines waiting. We are simply on a flight path if we mean to green the global economy. We don't have anything like the amount of copper, lithium, cobalt, and nickel that we will need to get the job done. So one of the jobs of a a venture capitalist now should be looking at where the bottlenecks and problems will be, reaching forward and trying to do something about it. So lithium ion batteries can be replaced by sodium ion, can be improved by using half the lithium or half the resources. And they will be, but there simply is not enough lithium to do the job the old-fashioned way uh, typical of last year. We have to keep changing everything. And this is a fairly relentless pressure on prices. And it, it came out in the wall how quickly that can flare up, of course, with the um, potash, which Russia and Belarus control 40% of the global sales. And this is not going away. For the rest of any listener's life, we are going to have rotating bottlenecks and shortages, and then they'll get over that one, and it will pop up over here. And uh, in general, the era of declining resource prices, which went on for a 100 years from the beginning of good data until 2002, the price of the average important commodity uh, dropped by uh, 70%, which is pretty handy for getting rich. And now that index, which went from 100 to 30, is back to 91 or 92. It means it's tripled since 2002. The average important commodity in real terms has tripled since 2002. The world has changed. The age of plentiful resources and declining prices is gone forever, as the title of my piece in 2011 said. It has gone forever. And that is inflationary, is it not? If you're dealing with the world as having to pay out for resources, there is nothing more inflationary than that. And it doesn't arrive like a clap of thunder, like a thunderstorm. It creeps in three steps forward, 2.7 back, but it's there forever. So you're running out of people, you're running out of resources, and the climate is turning against you. And that seems like inflationary, 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 all three of them, and anti-growth. And they're all biting now, to my surprise. And the damage from climate far accelerated above my original fears. And the speed with which the fertility rate has continued down has surprised everyone in the last 10 years. And the final issue, if you can bear with me, is uh, toxicity. And toxicity could be argued is a bigger problem than climate change. We have just created a world that is toxic to life for a variety of reasons. Mainly, you could argue, by chopping up all of the... uh, natural habitat so that all over Europe you don't have any large stretch of forest you have pockets here and there and then by the introduction of massive chemicals after World War II still growing like a weed which uh, are in the air in particulate matter deadly for humans but also deadly for many varieties of other living creatures and chemicals in the water the net result is uh, the biomass of insects appears to have dropped 50 to 75% since World War II the sperm count in the developed world has dropped less than half and it's showing no sign of decelerating. And it, it appears to be running at almost 2% a year in both cases. Lots of insects, lots of sperm count, 2% a year. I would argue it's quite plausible that we're already 
in what E.O. Wilson, the great Ant-Man, would call the, the cascade effect. In other words, even if we started to behave miraculously, brilliantly tomorrow, it's too late that insects, for example, are simply not as fitted for our environment as they used to be. And so irregularly, every second, third generation, they have a much smaller offspring and the, the numbers are irregularly, erratically they're going out of business. And this applies, of course, to the birds that eat them and, and the bugs that eat them, the amphibians and so on, all down 50, 60, 70 percent. And uh, it is much worse than people think. But the threat to us, my, my belief is we are going to end up banning whole ranges of chemicals. In fact, the majority of chemicals in the next several decades. And if we don't, we are toast. And it's showing up already, in my opinion, in both fertility and, and also in general health. American life expectancy today is 76. In England, it's 81. But if you went around, as The Economist pointed out, you go around London, you find that New Cross Gate, which is not a place you'd like to be on a dark night, it's the most desperately poor part of Greater London. It has a life expectancy of 76. That's as low as it gets. In uh, Westminster, I was checking myself, it's 86, 87, the richest, one of the richest districts. And uh, so we're at a level of New Cross Gate in the U.S. And, and Sweden is 84. We've managed to open up an eight-year gap in life expectancy as if we were on the cusp of a developing country. And we've gone backwards for the last seven years, which is unique in the developed world. And the only one who comes close is the U.K., which is flat for that time period. So we have lots of things to worry about, and they they all seem to be coming somewhat to fruition now in time to overlap with what would be a fairly normal, traditional recession caused by the usual reasons. And will these long-term-is-now factors, will they make it longer and worse? I think it's a possibility, which I've tried to write about. I don't think it's certain. I think things this complex can never be certain, but I think it's quite likely uh, that we will have unexpected negative consequences uh, for the next few years. Speaking of that, I live in Los Angeles, and just yesterday there was a tornado, an EF1 tornado in South Montebello, only 25 minutes from my house, which is just mind-boggling. And so to your point, I mean, things are really getting strange. We had one in Massachusetts 18 months ago. Unbelievable. Also for the first time. So you, you touched on so many points that I, I would love to cover what we don't have the time, but the picture of either people getting paid to have babies or maybe we're incubating them like the matrix. I mean, you could paint all kinds of interesting futuristic pictures from these trends. I'd like to see if we can end on a high note here because I recently came across this nature article uh, suggesting that superconductivity might be possible at room temperature. And this has been kind of a, a proposed idea for a long time, but maybe, perhaps, maybe they're making progress on it, which would really create more efficient batteries. It would dramatically change clean energy in a very quick way, as I understand it. And this is way above my pay grade also. I'm just wondering if you're following a story like that. But in the my bigger picture is, is now a golden era for VC because technologies like these are presenting themselves. Meanwhile, a lot of VCs are locking up because of fears around the general markets and high interest rates and money kind of flowing elsewhere that's less risky. So if you could really motivate VCs to run into the storm here and do the counterintuitive thing, which is to really invest in companies whose fundamentals are probably still strong, but the prices are now lower, what would you say to them? I think VC is our best shot at uh, digging out of all these problems and that uh, it does attract some of the best people. And a quarter of them are apparently 
from around the world. I mean, we do a really good job of taking their best people too, which is fine in the end because we crack these technological problems that they will spread around the world. The thing about research is in the long run, it's absolutely formidable. In a sense, they always work. Eventually, you always get fusion. You really do. And in the end, it's always longer than you think. So uh, fusion being, of course, the classic in both cases, but it's the same for everything. You pick up all these wonderful new ideas in the trade rags and you think, oh, wow, that's going to make all the difference in the world. And 10 years later, they're still working on it in the lab. And then 10 years later, it's a VC. And then 10 years later, they're starting to mass produce it. And 10 years later, they really have the cost down. The, the engineering effect is much more impressive in its way. It's underestimated because from the moment they start producing until 10 years later, they are unbelievably good at driving the cost down. And the first phase, of course, you can't have the second phase without the first, but the first phase is really a terrible tease because it's full of brilliant ideas that you will not live to see. It'll be your children. And most of them will eventually make it. The battery technology effort is amazing. There are different kinds of batteries, long-term, short-term, fast, slow, all over the place. It seems like some of the best talent in the world is working on it. And uh, yes, of course, there will be also fortunes made and so forth. And yes, this is a, a bubble and the bubble like 2000 was focused on growth stocks. And at the top of the growth stock, bubble were companies who are kind of research facilities that have no sales and have no earnings and might be three or four years away from having any sales at all. And of course, when confidence goes, they go down the most. My quantum scape went from 132 in December 2020, which is when I I start the bubble losing air on that day. It peaked bigger than the market value of General Motors or Samsung, and uh, with years to go before it has any sales. And last December, it hit 5.1. They um, So they research companies and early stage VC are right at the point of maximum vulnerability to a loss of confidence. That's the short-term story. And it may be a year or two of substantial difficulty. But in the long run, it's the only place to be. You, you're doing something worthwhile. You're generating new ideas. You're generating productivity gains. You're encouraging the economy in a world where economic growth has been slowing pretty steadily, and you're doing your best to counter it. And I think it will be in green, VC. Of course, you have the backing of the entire world's governments all getting behind it now, IRA being a a huge example, many multi-billions, but it's happening everywhere. And so it's like an unfair tailwind blowing you along. I'm very happy to have half my money there notwithstanding the next two difficult years, it's a hell of a place to be in the long run. I like to say it's the only case of potentially having your cake and eat it that I have ever come across, where it is exactly what we should do for the long-term well-being of the climate. And it's a candidate for making the most money of any sliver of investment in the entire capitalist system, which that is pretty cool. And I certainly hope I'm right. Well, you've been right about a lot of things, especially since we have been chatting over the last couple of years. It's always an honor to have you on the show, Jeremy. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your incredibly busy schedule and valuable, valuable time that you spent with us today. So thank you so much again for coming on the show. And I hope we can check in again down the road and uh, see how some of these things are progressing. But for now, thank you so much. And it really is a pleasure. And I, I see it as my job description to try and get some of, of these ideas out and about. So thank you.
And two, if they were a normal commercial bank, they'd be on the verge of bankruptcy. So they're months away from having negative tangible equity. The challenge now is that here in the 2020s, some of those things that those people that were concerned about in the, the late 80s and the early 90s are actually starting to manifest just way later than they thought. But I think deficits are actually going to be a problem in developed countries uh, really for the first time since the 1940s.